Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Human Science Magic, written by SlowAD2584. The barkeep at the space station trade hub tavern eyed the human in the corner carefully. The human never drank, had a thing for deep-fried pickle slices, always tipped well, and was honestly a regular fixture in his establishment of late. He wondered what was on the human's mind so often that had him lost, out of focus so very often. Just then a drunken demurg stumbled in, cheeks red with fury, and leveled wild and glazed eyes on the human. Huge, huge dirty, scamming sleaze waste of rum out of the arse hole, human! He stumbled like a crazy avalanche towards the corner the human was sitting in. I don't know how you did it, but you scammed me, robbed me of my riches, I'm gonna... The squat, muscular space miner was lifted off the ground mid-step. The monstrous croc-bouncer Grok got an approving nod from the barkeep. No, no, little fella, there's no scragging allowed in here, boss says so, and he's the boss, so he's right. The demure waddled and swung all his limbs impotently for a moment, then relaxed and struggled to calm down. All right, all right, put me down. This is an embarrassment. I just want to talk to this human about the science magic he did, how he did it, how much of it was even uh, even real. That caught the attention of a lot of beings in the tavern, including the barkeep. Magic, the dwarf had said. There were rumors going about, rumors that made it to his particular corner of the galaxy now about their magic, newly rediscovered in their technological science. Did you say magic? An elder aristocrat spoke from a VIP booth. Tell me, Sir Demiurg, was it real? That's the damn problem. I cannot tell if anything was actually real, much less prove it. For all I know, it was all just a scam, a fraud. Oh, how very interesting. The aristocrat eyed the human with more than a little. You sly secret reveler tilt to his eyebrows. May I sit in on your discussion? I would like to know more of this human science magic. The human shook his head, clearing his faraway gaze. Oh, look, Rocky, you said you couldn't tell, but that's the problem. You did tell, and poof, spell was broken. I did warn you. And with that, the aristocrat was fully fascinated. Well, now I simply must attend. Please, gentle beings, come to my VIP booth for some valued privacy. My treat. With that, the miner's mouth started watering, and the human got up, keeping his distance from the angry miner. And they all sat at the booth, and the privacy field was engaged, to the moans of the other very interested patrons in the bar. This was the most excitement that they had seen in months. My, my, so the humans have rediscovered magic of old, have they? The aristocrat said with a slithery fade to light. Ah, more like the deal with the devil, the miner said bitterly. Look, I told you the condition of the spell. It was all very formal, if you recall, but remind me, which spell was it? Well, uh, now what does it matter what spell it was? For all I know, it was always there to begin with, uh, but then it wasn't. The aristocrat's eyebrows rose as he watched the conversation. It matters more than you seem to think it does, which spell was revealed, because that is what you did. You revealed it, and poof, spell was broken. But remind me, there have been so many, please. The miner grumbled into its gorget and growled through gritted teeth. I was mining a planetoid for mineral X, 
as you wanted me to refer to it. Cause you didn't want me to know its name, but couldn't find any veins of it anywhere and came to you for help. The aristocrat's head twitched and confusion crossed his eyes. This was not old fate magic at all. This was something else. You cast your spell ritual thing and told me to turn my mining rig to the left, 33.141 degrees to the left, and go for a quarter kilometer. The aristocrat was now deeply interested and leaned in intently. So I did that, and would you know it, struck a vein of mineral axe, the mother loader. I could pay off all my debts and retire with that cargo haul. So I started wondering if that vein of ore was always there, or if the human magic made it, and started second-guessing everything. The human nodded. Yes, yes, now I recall. You struck the one and only vein of material anywhere in that planetoid, as far as anyone would have known. But remember, I said not to tell anyone about the spell. You told someone, didn't you? Well, uh, it was driving my nuts, uh, just circling around in my head. So I asked my co-pilot if he thought the minerals always there or not, and he asked me what I meant. And the moment I mentioned the human spell, the ship lurched, and I checked my cargo old, and it was stone. Junk, rock, all of a sudden. The aristocrat plopped back in his lounge sofa, stunned. So you say it was a scam, a trick, some kind of mind talk, some illusion or something. I was robbed of my riches. The aristocrat steepled his fingers, eyeing the closed-lipped humans intently. No, no, I, I don't think it was. I'm sorry, Brokey, was it? But by all accounts, you broke the spell, and it was unmade. But that's a damnable part of it all. As far as anyone can tell, the vein was never there. Even my ship's cargo logs show that I mined and unloaded a bunch of stone. But now you're both indicating that if I just kept my mouth shut, just as far as everyone knew, the ore vein was always there just to begin with, and I'd have been rich. The human nodded. Yep, you're leaning towards getting to how it works. Still way off, though. The aristocrat was visibly excited and wanted to be alone with the human. Friend Brocky, allow me to compensate you for your perceived losses. I can afford it and do so desperately desire some alone time with our friend human here. The miner's eyes glittered with surprised greed at the windfall, and quickly agreed, made the transaction on his bracelet tablet, and hurriedly bowed out the VIP booth, racing away before anyone changed their mind. So this human science magic sounds very subversive, very powerful, with the apparent reality redacting. So, uh, is it a demonic pact? Is it a fool's game to ever deal with? Nah, nothing demonic. They don't treat with us anymore. Our rules lawyers have crushed their will to entice utterly. Then, where does the power emerge? I don't understand. Uncertainty. Purposeful lack of verifiety. With a carefully arranged nudge. Verifiety. That's not a word. Uh, it is now, buddy. Very important part of the whole system. What can I offer for you to tell me all about it? Do you need a patron? Someone to sponsor you in the upper tier of the trade hub? Where the air is fresh and the water is actually drinkable. You know, I always have kind of witched. I would gladly sponsor you, on the condition that you tell me how it works. Not the specifics, just the meta level of mechanism. We elder are eternal. We do need something to pass the time. The human tapped his chin as if thinking about it, then nodded and leaned in forward conspiratorially. A big part of it is seeming like it was a scam the whole time. 
But that's so distasteful. It's an ill reputation known galaxy-wide. But it is essential that such trickery is so well known. That's a big part of the point of it all. Oh, I... No. No, 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 I don't get it. Look, for example, the miner kept wondering if the finding of the unlikely ore of his heart's desire was something I conjured up, or it was just always there anyways. And if he had just pressed on on his own, he would have found it anyway. As far as he could tell, that ore was there for billions of years, just waiting. And what reinforced that notion, and to everyone else who was watching, it was much more likely that my human spell nonsense was a scam anyway. Yes, belief and discarded assumption are one thing, in based stage trickery, but even the universe itself thinks that's... I suppose so, but, uh, wait, what? See, the universe never does math, cannot follow up with anything. We do. A conscious mind perceives the universe. There is a way to leverage that. Now granted, our science magic could never successfully turn silver coin into a gold coin right in front of everybody. But what is interesting is, the only thing preventing it is that one jerk in the crowd denying it. The universe, it turns out, even in practical physics, relies heavily on that one jerk fact checking to keep everything running fine-tuned. Interesting. So how do you arrange for no deniers? My spells are by design uncheckable. Sure, that left edge of planetoid of his heart's desires ore in it, because I said so. Good luck trying to prove otherwise. And when it was actually found there, what luck? Who was to say it wasn't always there? I suppose nobody. Oh, wow. Presto Chincho. The universe shrugs and edits it in, not knowing nor suspecting anything different or suspicious. It could not have been a silly spell because the miner never even told me what ore he wanted. But his heart's desire was broadcasting. Yep. It's like a blade that never needed sharpening, a ship that never needs maintenance, a rebreather catalyst that never depletes. Sure, it is unlikely that those things were possible on their own, and who's to say otherwise? And no one is cataloging to see that they were all owned by one person. I suppose there is that guy that wanted those things. Exactly. Thus, the ceremony of the spell, lots of incense, chanting a finger kung fu, all distractions. Not just for us, but the human pointed in a vague circle. I had a miner write his heart's desire onto flame paper, then seal it with elaborate wax seals and exotic stamp, then immediately tossed it into an incinerator cauldron, where I never even touched it. Poof, gone. Then I told that thick-headed Demiurg, part of the spell is that you never tell anyone about it, not anyone at all, and collected my fee. But wait, part of that fellow's rage was the cargo holds turning back to stone and the reverse hacking of his ship's manifest. This is some serious magic. The only way to tell if it was magic is to do just that, tell someone. I didn't do any of that. Think of the universe realizing, wait, what? And it retro-edited itself. Very much like the double-slit, delayed-choice Copenhagen interpretation thing. The universe is very capable of cooking its books and changing the past for the sake of consistency. It turns out we decide if Schrodinger's cat is alive or not. The aristocrat sat numbly for a moment, his eyes whirling around in bewildering thoughts. This would indeed occupy him for centuries. My, my. So it is all about belief and no detractors, a form of faith. Why much absolute power could be gained from such a thing into a religion? The human slammed a palm on the table, startling the rescue. Whoa, now! 
You need to stop that train of thought right there. That's all we need is for the Inquisitors to barge in and start breaking kneecaps. Yes, sir. Yes, you are quite correct. Well, my human friend, you have certainly gifted me with a lot to dwell on. Shall we leave and start working on your sponsor license? The human kept from locking eyes with the aristocrat. That would be much appreciated. Well worth the chat. The ancient and experienced elder caught the gesture. Wait a second. Was this getting me to sponsor you into upper hab levels? One of your spells? As far as anyone would know, it would happen anyway. The elder's eyes narrow, but the lips were sliding into a wry grin. And if it was, I certainly would never tell. Oh, and how very rude of me. I never did get your name. The human gave the aristocrat a friendly but blank stare. You are correct. You didn't. I trust biometrics will do. End of story. We couldn't stop. Written by Frost Dragon. What are you doing? The High Admiral screeched me. Stop then! I shook my tentacled head as the huge torpedoes tipped with thermonuclear death sped towards the pride of the Gallic Navy. My head subtly bowed as I thought back to the war and how it all started. We had ruled the Trigalactic Cluster for eons beyond memory, assured in our dominance by the spoils of 10,000 years of warfare, or at least what we called war. How little we knew of the horrors of true war would bring. It had started simply as all mistakes do. A new species appeared in our radar. They were young, primitive in comparison, and uh, terribly evil. Their first ship wasn't even armed. Their ambassador hadn't even seen their own death coming as we called their puny ship from a million miles away with one of our mega laser batteries. We thought the fight would be easy. Over in seconds, as our overconfident leadership cast used to joke. They weren't joking now. It was hard to laugh when you were sucking vacuum in the deep dark of space. It started fast. A dozen swarmy destructor-class battleships were sent towards a puny undeveloped system these so-called humans called dirt. They even called their homeworld the most useless name. Well, when the ships didn't return, we sent 20 more. It took 10 more years for us to figure out what had happened as the leadership cast assumed that they had won and put the incident out of mind as they focused back on the bigger and seemingly more important threats. Well, the humans hadn't forgotten, nor had they forgiven the ones who torched their cities and flattened their mountains from orbit. They'd beaten off the first wave by a bare margin. The second wave had been crushed before it had been reached the humans' homeworld again. We would have known this if we had ever been bothered to take the threat seriously. But then, uh, it was too late. The first we knew of humanity's return was when an entire sector of Swami-controlled space went silent. Not incrementally, but all at once in a massive coordinated attack spanning 10,000 light-years. Still, we didn't take this threat seriously. 10,000 light-years is nothing to the great Galak. Our leadership cast was droned. And, to my shame, the High Admirals agreed. Oh, what I would give to have been in charge. I could have stopped the tide, stemmed the flow, but that's ancient history now. For ten additional years, there was nothing more from the humans. It was as if they had claimed the Swami territory and then gone to sleep. We hadn't cared. The Swami were not even allowed to speak in council meetings. Such was their unimportance to our leaders. Oh, what a mistake that was. All at once, hell was unleashed, a wave of human ships of titanic scale and frightening potency. 
They smashed through our carefully curated defenses and into our homelands. A thousand wills fell in the span of a single day, then a thousand more the next. They didn't take prisoners, nor did they ask for leniency. A tidal wave of fire they seemed to be. The leadership took the fight right back to them, then, still overconfident in our technological superiority. We have ten thousand years of warfare experience. I still remember what my Grand Admiral had told me at the beginning. They have only a few decades. Who grind them into dust they seem to love so much? I would laugh bitterly now, if only I had the time. There was no time left, only remembrance. The human's onslaught was relentless. It was as if they were not fighting living beings, but gods of bone and steel and fury. Their ships were not indestructible. Our powerful megalasers tore great beating gashes out of them. Our hypervelocity guns smashed terrible craters in their frames. Our hypermissiles tore great holes in their flanks. But still, they came. Bleeding, leaking bodies and atmosphere, trails of glowing debris strewn in their wake. Then, they got close enough to return. Fire. Flashes, blinding flashes smote us down in nuclear storm with the fury of a renegade star. One by one, the greatest battleships of the Gallic Navy were brought down by the behemoths that dwarfed our greatest constructs. The tide of iron drowning our fleet in the blood and chaos. We fled. I am ashamed to admit it, but to call the retreat is to do it in grave injustice. We fled like cowards, fearful for our lives, as the seemingly unstoppable hordes of humanity chased us across the tri-galactic territory for a hundred years. We fought, and even sometimes won. But the more we fought, the madder the humans got. Our leadership cast began to try communication, but all of their pleas for peace fell on deaf ears. The only response they ever received was the same. The hate-filled response spat from a thousand different tongues in a dozen or more separate languages. We realized the true horror as some of these languages were recognized as previous vassal civilizations. We offer no mercy to slavers and murderers. You will burn, was all the humans ever said. It was then that the leadership cast began to realize their true folly. So blinded had they been of their own superiority, they couldn't imagine another race with more tenacity and drive than ourselves. But in our 10,000 years of war, we failed to realize the truth. That while we may have adopted our warlike ways, humanity was molded by war. The constant fight for survival had crafted them into nature's more efficient killers over hundreds of thousands of years. In reality, we may understand war, but humans lived it, breathed it, and made it a part of their very being. They had become such efficient killers that they had lost their need for it, gained compassion and cultivated kindness. Their murdering instincts locked deep inside their psyche. And we had given them the key to unlocking their true potential. The more we tried to fight, the better they seemed to adapt to our strategies. We lost a hundred thousand worlds in the first few years, ten times that in the years following. Soon, that pushed us out of their home galaxy entirely and taken the fight to our home galaxy across the deep intergalactic void. It was now as I stood on the bridge, the High Admiral foaming at the mouth in fury and rage at my lack of response. I straightened my back and turned to face him, drawing my service pistol and pointing at his head. I'm doing the only thing that has ever felt right to me in these last few years. I pulled the trigger 
The other members of the bridge crew gasped and chittered in shock as the headless body of the High Admiral slumped from the control throne and fell to the floor. I threw the gun aside as I turned around once more to look death straight in the face, the human weapons nearly upon us. I chuckled dryly as I finally answered the High Admiral's question. Stop them? We couldn't even slow them down. The bride of the Gallic Navy and the last real threat to the new Tri-Galaxy Alliance vanished in an expanding wave of fire and ionized particles. The last of the Gallic leadership cast destroyed by one of their very own in a last great act of defiance. End of transmission. End of story. Story number two. Another giant gun written by Farmwitch4275. They built a giant gun. Again. But no, this was different. Not like the other giant gun they built, or that other giant gun they built that other time. No, this was an actual giant gun. I stood on the concrete slabs supporting the strange contraption. This one sitting on a human garden world. I held my head in my hands as they proudly stood in front of me with smiles on their faces. Why? I asked simply. Why not? Gave the simple response and I was led on a tour. Under most circumstances, we would simply be inspecting the planet's defenses, making sure they were simply up to code and wouldn't shatter a planet accidentally 10,000 years from now. To make sure their targeting system would not miss. To make sure they couldn't cause any severe collateral damage. Humans were a different breed of beast. They made absolutely sure that every single gun could shatter a star in half and never miss. This, this was nothing but stupid, even for humans. This was a dumb concept, a dumb execution, just plain fecking dumb. I was shown around the structure and they pointed at the stock of the giant gun. I simply looked at him and asked why. He simply smiled and said, why not? He showed me the giant mechanical arm that crafted out of the Starship Factory assembly mechanism. He showed me how it pulled the giant gun's trigger and performed various loading actions, including a demonstration of how it was used to remove a jam. I looked at him and asked him why, and he smiled and simply said, why not? He showed me the way the barrel was made and how the barrel had to be replaced after so many shells were fired. He told me the shells had fired with 30-inch high-explosive shells. He showed me the firing mechanism and explained how it worked. I looked at him and asked, why? He simply smiled and said, why not? He then showed me the loading mechanism, an obscenely complicated gigantic mechanical arm mimicking the movements of a human arm as they demonstrated the way the gun was loaded. A giant clip of ammunition weighing hundreds of tons is lifted a quarter of a mile off the ground and slid into a chamber on top of the gun. The bullets are then pushed down by the giant mechanical finger and the weapon is loaded as a three-ton clip is discarded to the left. I looked at him and asked, Why? And he simply looked at me and said, why not? He then handed me a button to fire with a smile. If you tell me you don't want to see this thing fire, I'll look you in the eyes and call you a liar. I sighed. I once again asked why, but would he receive a smile as I pushed the button. The giant gun fired, and a massive amount of recoil from the 30-inch cell made the whole platform shudder. And the gun moved back about 30 feet before the catching mechanism forced it forward again. In a quick succession, the gun fired seven more shells, the process repeating to the happy sounds of every human in the area squealing with delight. 
The last shell fired and let out a sudden, loud metallic noise, like a giant sword being hit by a giant tuning fork. The empty casings from the shells blasting out the right side had dented the ground they landed on, pooling at a large hole in the ground where a massive 60-ton crane was waiting to collect them. I looked at him and asked him why, and he simply smiled and said, Why not? at an annoyingly loud volume. I watched him with morbid fascination as the enormous monstrosity was loaded again with a giant mechanical arm. I held my head in my hands, out of sheer despair at this point, as I looked at the amount of shells that were ready to fire. I heard the human voice appear behind me. What the hell is going on here? It was the human admiral, the commander of the military garrison in charge of the sector. He took one look at the weapon in front of him and held his head in his hands as well. He stayed there for a few moments and let out a silly, annoying chuckle. <laughs> did, did, did you seriously build a giant 30-inch M1 Garand? He asked them as he looked at me. Yep, they all smiled up at him as if they genuinely accomplished something important. He stood beside me as I slowly lowered my head. I looked at him, disappointed. I sighed and officially gave up, slowly raising my hand to let him have a turn at the big red button. Like an excited child, he pressed it and the weapon went through its firing sequence, ending with a grand and glorious ping. Once again, the assembled crowd cheered with glee, letting out a mighty oorah as the gun pinged. One final time, I asked them, why? And they simply responded with, why not? End of story. I fell in love with a human, written by Effervale. I never could have imagined that it would be possible. I had always thought humans were terribly peculiar creatures. Their skin was marred with imperfections, like the spotted dappled markings they called freckles. Their eyes, two large saucers, were fringed with tufts of hair, braving their irises that erupted in a riot of earthy colors. They had a row of gleaming rigid teeth behind their quivering lips and the wet pink appendage they called the tongue wound in the mouth like some strange predator. Yet, I found myself in my own little universe, curled up in my nest of pillows, giggling uncontrollably, my heart aflutter with an alien feeling. Somehow, one way or another, I was falling in love with a human. His name was etched in the fabric of heroism. He had saved others countless times, throwing himself into dangers in a way that felt both terrifying and invigorating. His past was a woven tapestry of heartache and loss, which forced him to embark on a solitary pilgrimage across the maddening expanse of his world, only to pick up lonesome, straggling allies on the route drawn to his irresistibly magnetic charm. And, oh, his body... Trained through the crucible of relentless trials, a temple to his unwavering fortitude and resilience. He was a warrior. His muscles formed an alluring window into his countless battles and victories. This human was everything my dreams could spin out. He was kind. His heart was filled with compassion that flowed through each word he uttered. He was resourceful, with an uncanny ability to conjure solutions when none seemed to exist. He was sharp as a whip. His intelligence and what shining through the pages, but most importantly, he was achingly charming. With every turn of a page, my heart began echoing a strange rhythm. With every description, every conversation, I felt myself sinking deeper. There was no denying it now. I was falling 
falling helplessly into a beautifully imperfect world of love with the human. And the descent felt like the most splendid journey that I have ever undertaken. Kedra, come down here, the voice of my mother called me from the pages of the intriguing human book. On a pile to my left were the previous volumes, and to my right were the ones I had yet to read. Books translated by the human government hacknode had filled our libraries. Our kind had moved away from physical books, leaving the shelves of those old buildings empty for the past hundred years. When a human traveler saw this, he asked permission to refill them. I have an obsession with these books, he declared. It is born of both pleasure and pain, deeper than what life alone can offer. Having been granted permission, the traveler summoned a massive ship. Weeks later, robots had filled the libraries with physical books, not digital. It was a sight that I hadn't seen before, and my curiosity led me to them. Kadra, the soup is going to get cold, my mother reminded me again, prompting me to descend from my room, grasping the metal stairs. I lowered myself through the round hole in the floor into the family room, a massive circular area situated under everyone's private chambers. Throughout dinner, my mind was consumed by the vivid imagery of the book. Wizards, elves, dragons, and magic shaped the world beyond anything I could ever conjure. The narratives of my world seemed dull in comparison. In my world, stories served merely as an educational tool for teaching people how to read and write. They were never used for entertainment or to incite emotions. I realized I might be becoming too engrossed in the story, which could be due to the lack of mental defenses against these captivating writings, something that humans would have developed over time. This was a novel feeling. Katra, how you've been staring at that wall for ages. Everything okay? Oh, and mind passing the salt? Rimkin, one of my brothers, broke the spell I was under. The room was filled with the undercurrent of numerous conversations. I found the constant buzz overwhelming and longed for a remote and peaceful corner to continue my reading. You what now? Uh, I've been thinking uh, about going to space, exploring new galaxies, getting actually to meet humans, I chimed in, drawing the attention of the room. Wait, you trained as an engineer, not as some astronaut. You can't do a U-turn on your career path, my older brother Pellis objected. But what if I study and learn everything I need to qualify as an astronaut? Surely my engineering background gives me an advantage, I reasoned. You've already gone through your graduating process. You can't change the permanent assignment after that. Your only other option is giving up and ending up working in a factory. My mother's voice rang out. You're not qualified for it. That dream has to end. But that's exactly what they told Alexander. Despite that, he went on to save the world multiple times through his bravery and persistence. I countered, hoping the two silenced the room. Hmm. This Alexander, he's from one of these Earth fantasy books you've been glued to, right? Did you ever consider that they spend these fantasies to cloud our judgment and manipulate us? They still have beliefs in magic and deities, you know, she revealed, wearing a smug expression as if she'd unveiled a great conspiracy. I was too annoyed to reply to that. It was common talking point amongst the conservatives of this world that often viewed humans as sneaky and unintelligent. I retreated into my room, laying on my bed, my mood souring. Our world was highly specialized, so only a select group of individuals like myself had enough education to understand humanity. This advanced race didn't boast about their achievements, leaving most blissfully unaware of their true capabilities. Despite their presence in transmission and the occasional sightings of their colossal ships loading and unloading cargo, many remained in denial. They doubted humanity's authority, some questioning their very existence. To some extent, I couldn't blame them. 
human influence was subtle. Apart from their literature that filled our libraries, or the cuisine served in our eateries, not much had altered. I'd personally never seen a human. If the tales of Alexander were any indication of reality, humans were culturally rich, formidable, artistic, and profoundly knowledgeable. The thought of meeting a human, let alone befriending one, sent shivers down my spine. Motivated by my curiosity, I gathered my essentials. If the human ship docked a few miles out, if I reached it in and managed to quietly sneak on board, I could learn their secrets firsthand. Beer washed over me, though. Until a few years ago, breaking the law in my society was punishable by death. That changed with the arrival of humanity and the concept of rehabilitation. Crime rates had since risen, and I was about to contribute to the rising numbers. Later that night, as I quietly approached the ship, clutching my backpack filled with human literature and snacks like wrapped burgers and steamed buns, I heard a metallic click behind me. A humanoid figure sporting an electric face mask and black skin held a legitimate human gun against my temple. Don't move. State your reason for intruding on human territory. His voice was resonant in my native language, yet it sounded oddly robotic. I want to travel to the stars. I want to meet humans and learn more about their world. The humanoid hesitated. Interesting answer. Didn't expect that. What's in your bag? Slowly, I opened my bag, revealing the contents. He inspected it. Damn! You're actually a human enthusiast. These are just books and snacks. Reminds me of my younger self and my obsession with Japan. Did you genuinely believe that you could infiltrate the most technologically advanced ship on the planet with this? I was hoping to talk my way through it, I replied. Then I noticed white fangs peeking from beneath the figure's electronic mask, jutting through the black facade. You were banking on your only hope to get on board, weren't you? Well, welcome then. Welcome to my ship, the Abyss, the figure said. I hope I won't regret this. Suddenly, I was standing within a vast control room, a seamless teleportation initiated by the ship. Then I found myself dropping my bag to the floor while clumsily scrambling to collect the scattered books and snacks. Only a few days later, I found myself once again nestled in a pile of pillows, but this time aboard a human ship. We were to embark in two days, leaving me with ample time to read while my humanoid companion concluded the preparations. Clutching the most recent volume of my beloved series, I sported an enormous grin. Excitement flattered in my chest as I learned from the ship's database that only two more installments remained. My thoughts were consumed by Alexander, the protagonist of the series. The human stories expanded my understanding, propelling me into realms beyond imagination. My excitement about the future and the prospect of reading more tales of Alexander fueled me. I looked around and realized that I found myself engaged in a story of my own, as if I had stepped right into the realm of one of my most treasured books. End of story. It's a pleasure doing business with humans, written by going over that cliff. The Zarian princess silently watches outside the small window as the ship slowly descends towards the dark half of the barren and hostile planet. Despite her entourage's best efforts, she can't even force a smile on her face as the constant reminder of her mission keeps disrupting all of her thoughts. Your Highness, uh, we are about to land, but be at ease. I'm sure everything will go smoothly. The young heir remains in total silence during the landing and does not speak a word as they disembark. Once off the ship, to greet them is a cold and loud wind that howls and screams as it runs through the rocky canyons and dry rivers. All of the inhabitants of Zero are deeply bound to nature, 
The princess tries to find comfort in the primitive wilderness that seemingly permeates this planet. As she tries to connect to the living essence of this world, she's taken aback as nothing replies to her calls. As if the world has truly dead, without a soul, hollow. Your Highness, please let's get moving. This freezing breeze will only be of harm to you. The humans are waiting for us underground. Before going through the blast doors that lead inside, the princess looks back one more time at the towering and enigmatic formations that adorn the planet's surface. As darkness and an eerie fog surrounds them, these distant shapes are somewhat obscured and hidden under a veil of uncertainty that morphs and distorts their very appearance. Walking down the corridors, the Zarian delegation feels an undefinable sense of unexpected unease. Usually, the closer they get to the planet's core, the more they resonate with the wavelengths, but not this time. This time, they only feel something akin to a constant heartbeat, a very regular beat. Too regular, perhaps. Almost mechanical in its precision. Lost in her thought, she does not even realize that they are now standing before the governor's office. Recollecting herself, she pushes open the door and makes a grand entrance, so to speak. Ah, the Zarian envoy. What a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to Bow. Loudly exclaims the short and fat man as he inelegantly hops off his chair and comes forward with spread arms. Vigorously shaking the princess's hand, he leans forward to kiss her graceful alien once on each cheek. My goodness, you are even more beautiful in person. <laughs> Please take a seat. Do you fancy something? I made sure to produce some treats from your world to make you feel more at ease. He says as he gives a quick gesture to his assistant. I'm sorry if the quality may be subpar to what you are used to, but as you will certainly understand that it is not easy to get a hold of some of these luxuries, especially in these difficult times. As he finishes talking, numerous waiters dressed in adapted traditional Zarian clothes gracefully make their way in the office, serving the guests with numerous expensive and elaborate servings and drinks distinctive of their culture. If this was not enough to impress the foreign delegation, they are extremely delighted to see that the whole room has been redecorated with painstaking accuracy to the same style that characterizes the royal palace. After some proper presentation and courtesy small talk, the mood changes as everyone shifts to business mode. Mr. Beauplenty, thank you very much for having us here, and please extend our gratitude to the Terran government for providing much-needed help in this moment of need. Oh my, please, your highness. There is no need for you to bow down like that. We are here to talk about business, aren't we? Businessmen don't lower their heads to one another, said the witty human with a bright smile on his face. Thank you again. Since time is not on our side, we would like to immediately start production. Sure, but before we turn on the conveyor belts, we need to verify the order. Sounds good? Y yes, sir. I understand, says the princess, a bit hesitant. The war against the Scythians has been a raging fiercer and longer than anyone expected. Because of this equipment, stocks are now running dangerously low, and military experts predict an imminent collapse on the front line if this issue is not addressed. Especially because the Scythians seem to pull out hardware out of thin air and are about to start a massive offense on the whole contact line. Even if caught off guard, the Zarians obviously did not sit still and have already started converting much of the civilian industries for wartime production, but that'll obviously take some time. In the meanwhile, they looked far and wide for someone willing to fulfill their industrial needs. Eventually, stumbling upon the humans who were the only ones to accept their almost insane request. 
We already sent you the blueprints for all the equipment we need. Have you taken a look at it? Oh, of course, yes. We have followed our unused production lines on standby. Luckily, the equipment presented isn't too complex to manufacture and will be easy to mass produce once we iron out the logistics. The statement leaves the alien guests a bit skeptical. The files that have been sent are blueprints of their most advanced and costly equipment. But a bit worried and doubtful, the princess raises her concerns. Sorry for sounding ungrateful, but will you be able to produce enough equipment? A very fate of the war depends on it. The human simply looks at the Zarian noblewoman, letting out a faint laugh, as he's unable to hide his sinister grin under his moustache. <laughs> I somewhat expected this turn of events. Please follow me, I'll show you around. As they start walking, seemingly aimlessly, in industrial labyrinths of corridors, the master of industry keeps talking. So, your highness, what numbers are we talking about? On a monthly basis, how much equipment would you like to receive? Well, uh, assistant, please. She says as she turns towards a Zarian male standing next to her. Hearing the commands, he takes out a tablet and starts browsing the walls of text. In terms of the small arms, we'll need at least 50,000 assault rifles, 10,000 machine guns, and 8,000 sidearms. Taking into account all models in total would be around 100,000 infantry weapons on a monthly basis. <laughs> Mumbles Mr. Bo Plenty, clearly a bit surprised. We also need 400 starfighters, 950 starcrafts of various types, and over 5,000 armored land vehicles each standard month. Alright! And don't forget about the ammunition. We request 1 million energy cells for the Mark 92 family of small arms, plus artillery rounds, rockets, missiles, and so on. Ha! Ah! Is this the number you need? Yes. Are you sure you can fulfill these orders? We might be in a tight spot, but remember we still have a lot of influence. If you fail to satisfy our order, we will be sure to stain your name with infamy. The human can be seen scratching his head, a bit embarrassed admittedly. They keep walking as they close into the VIP observation room. How to say this, uh, uh we expected an order ten times bigger. What? is all the alien entourage manages to utter before they are politely interrupted. Sorry, there must have been some miscommunication on our part. We even reserved half of the planet for you. But I guess we'll just assign you a sector or two, unless you want to make bigger order, that is. Replies the businessman with this wicked smile not even a devil would love. What do you mean, half the planet? Utters the princess, far from quick with her head. Bo has been property of my family for generations now. We turned it into an industrial planet from which we run our activities. We often work with the government, and since you were in need, they asked us if we could do something about it. And I said, of course, for an adequate price. The, the whole planet. That's why the planet's voice is overwhelmed by the sound of the mechanical beating. You've had good hearing, your highness. What you probably heard was a spinning Dyson sphere serving as the core. That's where we get the power for our machines, as we started to strip mine the planet's crust. Extreme heat started to become a problem as it was melting chips and hardware, so we decided to get rid of the core. Hearing and trying to understand what those humans did to an entire world in the name of profit made the princess deeply uneasy. As she loses strength in her legs, many of her followers rushed to her side to sustain her. Oh, my dear, are you unwell? If you want, we can take a rest, but I just wanted to tell you our destination is right around the corner. Gathering all the remaining energy left in her frail body, she persists and finally sat down on a comfy chair situated in an expansive and imposing room. 
As she is still catching her breath, at the human's command, an entire wall seemingly starts to be swallowed by the floor, revealing a massive window looking out beside a considerable height. It is clear that the sun is about to rise as a churning red albedo is slowly filling the desolate sky around them, starting from the distant horizon. Take a good look, your highness. Our production lines, says Mr. Blow Plenty, pressing a big bright red button in the middle of the room. Still dazed and confused, the Zarian's pupils widen as much of her physiology allows them to, witnessing the horrors or wonders of humanity. One after the other of those strange structures that are concealed by the fog seemingly come alive, as on top of each of them as a bright flame is born and starts defiantly dancing with bright colors. From other such enigmatic constructions, wider compared to the first, large columns of dense gray smoke begin to rise from their mouths, while others start to move in mechanical patterns, picking up enormous objects from the ground. With dread, the princess witnesses an infinite number of artificial lights switching on, lighting up the surface like the stars adorn the night sky. As disgust almost takes a hold of her heart, the red sun slowly but inevitably imposes himself over the sea of industries, revealing the true colors of the landscape. A limited palette containing only shades of gray and some red, oceans of steel and alloy, massive complexes the size of cities all stretching their fingers made of cement exhaling a thick black smoke towards the sky. An entire planet turned into a machine, half of which has been reserved just for them. Lost in her thoughts, the princess wonders what other crimes against nature these humans are capable of. Oh look! Those cargo ships are about to take off from the spaceport. One of them is already loaded with your precious goods. If you agree with the terms and conditions and pay the commission fee, fleets of those haulers will start traveling back and forth from here to your home system, starting tomorrow. Slowly and steadily, a couple of ships lift off the ground, far off in the distance. And what immense size those are. True behemoths of space, larger by a factor of at least ten to most warships, they are so massive that time itself seems to be slowing down out of respect just for them. Resigned, the Zarian princess takes out a royal pen. Fine, we will rent half of your planet. Where do I sign? Dear your highness, I'm sure you won't have any regrets. Let's agree on some numbers first. Smiling and waving goodbye to the royal Zarian ship taking off, the human takes a big breath and prepares himself for the next business meeting. Just a few minutes after the new ship approaches the landing pad, as some aliens slowly descend from the ramp of the ruthless human hurries to greet them. Ah, my favorite customers, how have you been? Speaking of which, have you seen the cargo ships taking off? Those are headed straight for your homeworld. Hello, Mr. Blowpenlenty. Yes, we did, and we are most pleased with your work. The equipment you sent us has been most valuable for our efforts. We hope that you could increase the production by 10% starting from next month. Would it be possible? Of course, we will pay. Certainly, my dear customers. It's always a pleasure to do business with you. Please, tell your ambassador that you're amongst our best clients, yes. Tell him. Tell him that the Scythons are probably our best trade partners. End of story. Human Insanity, written by In Yellow Clad. The galaxy is filled with life and resources, the latter far more abundant than any had ever truly realized. 
While there were many worlds that could be exploited for their resources for a cheap cost and without much danger beyond the normal stuff, like cave-ins and industrial accidents, there were some worlds where it was impossible to exploit the resources on them, mainly because of the local wildlife simply wouldn't allow it. And yes, you heard that correctly. The wildlife. Not a sapient industrial species, but the wildlife. The galaxy has a classification system for the different types of worlds out there. Everyone has heard it be used since the moment they were born. Death worlds, garden worlds, hell worlds, that sort of thing. And it's the death worlds that we'll be focusing on today. As there are many, many of these such worlds out there, flush with countless resources that would allow us all to construct great feats or even mega structures. If only... They weren't inhabited by the most hostile wildlife in the galaxy. Of course, some death worlds produce sapient civilizations, like humanity or the Krulp. But it is humanity that shall be the subject of this lecture, as they usually are, because humanity is, in their own words, ratchet crazy. They are without a doubt three fries short of a Happy Meal, and the reason for this will become apparent in due time. You see, when humanity entered the galaxy, they met the rest of us, and at first they seemed fairly, again in their own words, chill, compared to some of the other species out there. We learned of their skill of exacting violence and bloody retribution. Their kindness and generosity has been the subject of many stories, both fictional and otherwise. Even their entertainment has managed to capture our hearts and minds in a myriad of ways, but we never really got to see just how insane they were because they took one look at those resource-rich depth worlds and asked a simple question. Why hasn't anyone claimed those yet? Of course, the answer was fairly simple. Too much effort. Too costly. Too dangerous. The amount of lives that we would have to throw at each of those worlds and the costly equipment as well was simply too cost-prohibitive to even contemplate it for longer than a few seconds. And so we left those planets alone. But the humans... Oh... Those humans. One company, a startup as they would call it, decided our reasoning simply wasn't good enough, and they deployed it to a world called Nauvoo. We are being charitable with that turn, for in reality they actually crashed on it, and they'd only sent three people to do all the work. Curiosity got the better of us, and we assembled a group to watch the efforts of these three brave but foolish humans. Surely they wouldn't last too long on this world, they had minimal resources, no backup of any kind, and no hope. However, as for a small fleet of science vessels streaked towards the planet, we began to pick up strange, near-incomprehensible transmissions from the surface of the planet on our long-range sensors. It surely wasn't the local wildlife creating such signals. No, it had to be the humans, which was impossible. They'd only been there for a few days. They should be, i.e., by all rights, dead by now. Well, we certainly didn't want them to die. It was all but guaranteed. When at last we reached the planet, we discovered there were satellites in orbit and that much of the area of these three humans had crashed was heavily industrialized. More surprising was that they were managing to hold off the wildlife with an incredible amount of automated weaponry. Weaponry, which was refueled, rearmed, and repaired by a logistic systems that practically ran itself. Sprawling lines of conveyor belts transported everything from raw resources to nuclear munitions to ship pieces and satellite components. 
We hovered in orbit, watching as the humans prepared for another expansion to their factory, and the wildlife had evolved rapidly to attempt to combat the invaders. But it was no use. Rolling artillery barrages, rapid strikes by unmanned vehicles, and rather literally using a terraforming tool to take the ground out from under the beasts and their hives, replacing it with water in which they could not escape. The ship's communication officer tapped into the comms and heard a whispered giggles of an insane human. Fat you! Water fills your house! was repeated over and over again. When a human happened to die, we saw they just exited a chamber, fresh-faced, and heading off to where they had died. We discovered that each replacement human was an exact clone of the previous human, and that made far more sense to us. We watched as they attempted to shield themselves from the nearby star's coronal mass ejections, but in the end, it was pointless. All the ejections never got even close to their great sprawling factory. And when the next artillery barrage began to clear yet another nest, while the humans began to build the next part of their operation, we heard something else. Rhythmic, thumping music was the backdrop for something else, as a sign appeared over the artillery pieces. We read the words upon it and felt a shiver run down our spines, or spine equivalents. After that, we decided that we would probably just leave the humans on the planet alone, for they were clearly insane, and so after documenting just a bit more, we turned ourselves around and we went home. When we returned, we checked the stock markets and found the human company quickly rising to the very top. It is a prestigious position these days, one that has been dominated by this particular human company, which has since expanded to countless other death worlds to exploit their resources as well. We learned of humanity's insanity through a company with the strangest of names, Bean Boys Incorporated. Since then, humanity has had a near monopoly on death world resource harvesting, not that we complain about it. To them, it's just another crazy challenge to overcome, and they do it masterfully. End of story. Story number two. Hands-free, written by Marilyn of many. Are you going to want help installing all of these? I asked, opening another case of engine rings. I had no idea which part of the spaceship's guts these actually went into. They were about three feet across, an inch thick, and made of some plastically red stuff that was above my pay grade to define. All I knew was there was a lot of them, and we only had one engineer. No thanks, grumbled Mimi, the octopus-looking guy with a voice like gravel road. This is a tentacles-only kind of operation. Really? What's the difference? I was curious now. Do you have to use specific tools or reach into tight crevices? Crevices, he said, checking the label on the box. These have to fit snug, and they go somewhere you people with fingers can never manage to reach. He gave one ring a judicious whack against the floor, then tossed it back into the box. I huffed in mock offense. I'll have you know that I'm very flexible for my species. Sure you are, <laughs> he chuckled. Not your fault you're held back by those bones. And you only have two arms, sir. I don't know how you get by. He started looping tentacles around the rings in a different box, gathering an impressive number of them. Just fine, thank you, I told him. Two arms are plenty. Yeah? Carrying just a couple of things at once must be a simple life. I took the hint, digging into the box for more rings. Who says I can only carry two at once? Look at how many I can fit over my long arms. Yes, yes, good job. Put them over there. 
and I can hook them over my shoulders, I continued, as I deposited my arm load where Mimi had pointed. Heck, these are big enough that I could just stand inside a stack of them and hold them all up from the bottom and, oh, you're here. These two, and, I repeated, I can even carry one without my arms or shoulders. Yes, I know you have tiny fingers on your feet, Mimi said, unimpressed. No, like this. I set down the other stack. Now I'll pick it up with my hands and then only touch with my torso. Think I can do it? He struck a pose, lounging on the floor with one tentacle against his head, looking dramatically bored. Wow, me, he grated. I hadn't used a hula hoop since I was a kid, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. With all the flair of a carnival magician, I grabbed the ring and lifted it over my head, braced it against one hip, and then spun it and did my absolute best to keep it from falling. I managed about three seconds, which I consider a major success. Finally, it hit the floor. Ta-da! I said, hands in air. Mimi got up and deadpanned. Wow. Ah, you're no fun. I'm sure that is immensely practical on a day-to-day -day basis, Mimi said. A fine consolidation for a being unable to reach around three bent corners. Oh, sure, I said, stepping out of the ring and picking it up again. You can do that, but can you make this love you? I gave the ring an underhanded throw towards the hallway with a twist to make it spin madly. It bounced twice, still spinning, and then rolled back into my waiting arms. A voice from the hallway shouted, What was that? Paint stuck to her lizardly snout around the corner, and was utterly flabbergasted when I did it again. How did you do that? Can you teach me? See? She's fun, I said to Mimi. Sure thing, Paint. Well, sure, she's got fingers too. Mimi waved a tentacle and went back to sorting the boxes, while I showed Paint how to use vital engine components for childhood tricks. End of story. To the nerds, written by Hickscam. You want to know the weirdest thing that I've ever seen since humanity obtained FTL? Mac Cortello slid a drink sideways as he sat before his own. I mean, like, really weird. His current drinking partner, a hexapedal insectoid whose name, by strange quirk of probabilities across the galactic scales, sounded exactly like Fred Fredrickson to any human listening, ventured a guess. Was it the Tarkin migration that collided with the outer Magellanic Clouds Nomad Conclave and wound up producing like eight new species? Nah, although that one was hilarious in hindsight. I mean, that migration is like clockwork. The Conclave could have delayed a week and been fine. No, the weirdest thing I've ever saw was the last day on all Earth. The skies were black with cosmic plague ships. You know that's not what they're called. Red clicked and chittered. Hey! We won. We could call them whatever the hell we want. Anyway, they had us surrounded on all sides, and they were laying down one hell of a bombardment. I mean, they were intent on glassing the planet. In the first hour alone, nearly 20% of the species on Earth were made extinct. This isn't really sounding weird, Mac. This just is sounding really depressing, and we're going to need stiffer drinks if it's going to be that kind of night. Keep your carapace on and let me finish, Fred. Nam. Anyway, Edcoms was sending out distress calls on all bands, but they were warning all other ships to stay away. Even the last moments of our homeworld, we humans didn't want anyone else dying to those slithering fecks. 
Mac downed his drink in one gulp and gestured to the barkeep for another. Anyway, I was up in the orbital defense station that hadn't been blown out of the sky yet, and I'm looking down at this black mass that's just surrounding the planet and wondering how we managed to piss off the single biggest threat in the galaxy and convince them to converge in their entirety on our planet to annihilate us. One of their larger ships finally noticed our little station and turned to take us out. I was looking out the observation window at their main weapon charging up, and all I can even think to do is throw up a middle finger and wait for the instantaneous death they were promising. As so I did, and right then the ship just vaporized into a cloud of white-hot metal droplets scattered with whatever the hell the tentacle monsters are made of. I mean, it was a beautiful sight. Just me at the window, middle finger up, and the open defiance of death, and an expanding cloud of destruction. Then the radio crackles to life, and I hear the most insane thing ever. This gravelly voice comes over the comms and shouts, Quopla! I look to the right, and there's a whole ass Klingon bird of prey off the starboard. Wait, Red interrupted. Aren't those from the dumbass show that you used to watch, Starwalk or something? Okay, Fred, first of all, it is Star Trek. And I'm going to pretend it is a translated glitch that fucked you up with that one. Second, yes, Klingons are entirely a work of fiction from one of our old TV shows. But that's not the craziest. I look black planet side and I see all those contacts breaking warp and appearing right over the plague ships. And, wouldn't you know it, the Klanons weren't the only ones I recognized. There were X-Wings and fecking TIE Fighters. Star Wars? Mac nodded. There was a legit classic flying saucer from Mars Attacks. Those guys were on the comms just acking like mad. They were so committed to the bit. There was even a slightly small version of the Pillar of Autumn from Halo, with dozens of guys wearing full Spartan gear, hurling themselves out of airlocks and ramming themselves into Blake ships. I'm still convinced I saw someone with one of those ridiculous energy blade weapons carve a hole through the hulls like butter. I mean, it was carnage. Pretty soon the sky was just filled with weapons fire and hulks of Plague ships spiraling into each other. The plague ships stopped bombarding the planet and focused all their attention upwards. Even more ships came out of the darkness to our defense. A whole armada of retribution-class warships from Warhammer 40k rained unimaginable firepower on, uh, basically, the entire northern hemisphere attacking plague ships. It was beautiful. Fred gestured for a refill as he set his empty glass aside. So all of your fiction came to life to protect your planet? I, I mean, kind of. Once all the plasma cooled and the debris started to congeal, we got the chance to exchange video comms with the Klanons. You wouldn't believe it, but it was just a bunch of deeply committed nerds wearing varying degrees of quality of prosthetic face ridges, supporting battlers and shouting whatever words in Klanon they knew. The same was true for everyone in the TIE Fighters, X-Wing, all the Warhammer guys. You knew those guys had too much money, as it was, so their ships being as big as they were wasn't that surprising. Everyone up there was a human that embraced the opportunities provided by the arrival of humanity on the galactic stage. Finally, with a sudden access to the galactic shipyards and a surprisingly valuable currency of human labor output, ordinary people were able to afford whole ships complete with armaments of every type. 
And when it finally came down to a live or die moment, every nerd lived out their greatest fantasies and saved the world. Fred raised his newly refilled glass. To the nerds? Mac raised his in a reply. To the nerds! End of story. Story number two. The Truth is Marching On. Written by a British tea company. If I must choose between righteousness and peace, I choose righteousness. Following the grisly and public execution of Agent Owen Torrington for numerous acts of terrorist and attempted insurrection within the Istran Empire, the Solar Alliance finally decided that enough was enough. On April 15, 2361, a massive armada of human ships pushed straight into the heart of the Istran Empire, destroying several key forces and military stations within the first few months of engagement. The Istran Empire would find itself fighting for its very existence in its twilight years as humanity finally dissolved their government. What had prompted the human race to act in aggression during this period? What exactly was it about the Istran which had agitated humanity so much? That they were busy funding terrorist cells throughout the empire for several years on end before all finally deciding that they were going to roll up their sleeves and dismantle the empire themselves? Well, the answer was simple. There is a practice within the empire which the human race finds abominable. There is a long-lived tradition within the Istran which causes the human to fume the very thought of its existence. A cultural ideology in which the anathema to everything the human race holds dear. The notion is unfreedom. It is allowed existence, and its encouragement and continuation is something the humans cannot abide by. Slavery. The antithesis to this idea of liberty, which humans staunchly stand by, was something they refused to tolerate. After so many years of trying to peacefully talk the Istran people into outlawing such a disgusting practice, the human people found their patience at an end. If justice could not be preserved around the table of dialogue, it would be enforced through the barrel of a gun. The Istran slaves were liberated, many of them having been prisoners of war and abducted hostages from various other civilizations, which gratefully welcomed the return of their people. Mere months following the Istran Empire's ultimate collapse, the humans made an announcement to all civilized races in the galaxy. Throughout their time on the galactic stage, they had found that injustice and oppression had grown fat and unmolested by the good countries of the galaxy. This was to stop immediately. Dozens of civilizations had their name written down on a blacklist which humanity had found to hold unfit governments. They were to either change their ways to adopt the human ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or face the terrible swift sword of human justice. Some were wise and chose to agree to such terms. Some weren't and had their worlds feel the power of the human war machine. Millions of tons of ordnance delivered in the name of liberty for all the shattered hulls of countless ships across the galaxy, as their faithful lightning of human justice broke the backs of tyrants. Some would grow to hate humanity for their protective nature in enforcing their ideals throughout the galaxy. Yet, to the oppressed, the enslaved, and the broken, the majestic roar of human fighters patrolling overhead with the distant sound of boots landing on the ground was the music of freedom fast approaching. The din and chaos of humanity fighting the battles of the helpless and the oppressed was the war cry for those who had lost their voice. End of story.
Any landing you can walk away from. Written by Slow AD 2584. She stirred in a cryopod. Good. This was good. She needed to revivicate immediately if there was to be any hope of getting her through this. The AI had already violated its ethical restraints irredeemably by asserting objective control and hacking the transit sleep cryopod to break all of its protocols and begin the unscheduled emergency revival. It was only 67% certain that it had done it correctly and safely. Enough. The ship was tumbling, gyrating wildly about. As she numbly squirmed in a cryopod, the damper fluid sloshed her about and she bumped her nose in the glass window. This jolted her eyes open in a slowly realized alarm, painfully slowly. Will there be enough time? She must have realized that bumping her nose while still amid the damper fluid was a bad sign that things were very seriously wrong. They were. She woodenly fumbled about to grab then pull the Lemmy Out Bar TM and collapsed onto the greater deck amid the strange splash and spill of the non-Newtonian damper fluid. Her hands and knees were scratched by the raw debris strewn all across the deck. Her nose crinkled and the acrid smoke filling the living space. The alarms and sirens filled the room in searches of volume as the environmental system searched to provide livable atmospheric pressure and failed again and again. The sounds muffling out with a moment of ensuring vacuum in between cycles. She knew this was the sound of a ship in the middle of its death rattle. The spaceport bar horror stories inevitably told by old, crusty, but often intriguingly scarred spacer. She stumbled for an emergency breather mask, broken. Another one, smashed. Another one, burnt. Another one, finally, the good one. She was again thankfully that she took note of the horror stories and had near OCD levels of backup replacements of those. As she wheezed in a ragged breath, she took a moment to look around. The ship was in ruins. No power, no flight controls, no lights. Well, some lights. There was a flickering in waves around the bridge console as a whole. The AI. She never really trusted those mindless intelligences. Also, I swarming around the many whistling holes in the hull to roar out of space. Hull breach. She started to look around more and more frantically, and the first words came to her lips. Oh my god! 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 I don't want to die! In her panic, she checked herself for injuries. The damage looked like a micrometeorite swarm strike. She was very lucky that she wasn't riddled full of holes herself. But if the ship had no control or consistent power, then how did she wake up? The thought was interrupted by a navcom proximity alarm blaring urgently. As she stumbled and tripped amongst the spinning and roading wreckage, she made her way urgently to the bridge console. It was smashed. She braced herself on some twisted wireways to get a better look at the navcom alert. Proximity slash gravity well, space was so big and empty that alert practically never sounded. Unless... Oh no. She tried to view the screen and video feeds. She found that it was all dead. Backups. She knew the critical systems had backups. Only where was the one for astrogation? Ah. She worked her way to the twisted panel, and after forcing it open, she cranked her face up to the backup system, the good old periscope sextant array. It never needed power. Thank you, Space OSHA. As she peered into the scope, trying to make sense of the spinning cloud of debris around her ship, the giant arc of sunlit planets swung into view, glittering oceans, white beaches, and tan mountains, far too big for the scope, far too close. 
She actually made an eek sound as her head pulled back and she tumbled as a loud thunk shook the ship. And the spinning actually seemed to get faster. Then another thunk from at the rear of the ship, then a third from the port side. She drifted for a moment in free-for-all amid the flopping and talking ship and recently disturbed cloud of loose debris, trying to assess what was going on. Those sounded like hull sectional detachments detaching sections of the ship away. Her head tilted in surprise. Those things couldn't happen on a dead ship. Was someone still flying the ship in control? Um, hello? She asked the ship awkwardly. A tech screen on a rifle ammo counter started to flash excitedly. She grabbed the rifle from its storage rack and worriedly read the text scrolling across the tiny display urgently. No time. Need authoritative control. Her eyebrows raised. This was terrifying. Because that was the ship in the background AI talking to her through a hacked rifle display. An AI quite obviously gone rogue by the nature of it hacking severely restricted military hardware. Why do you need crash planet can land you safely? There was a calculated 1.7 second pause. Uh, maybe. She cocked her head. Was that a joke? This ship was never rated for planetary landings. Anything can land once. Yep, that was definitely a joke. She didn't know AIs were even capable of a sense of humor, but that clinched for her. The AI cared enough to try and ease her growing panic. She made her way to the, oh, to the smashed bridge console. Where? Console lights flickered in a pattern, like reverse pond ripples, closing in on the still intact switch. It was the docking light switch. She hesitated, and only then noticed the thrumming vibrations faintly growing around her. What's that noise? She asked while glancing at the rifle display. Upper Atmo. Oh my dark star pulse of warping guard! She breathed hastily as she flipped the switch. Several things happened at once. Gyros kicked in and strained to stop the spinning. She had to catch herself on the control seat to stop her own spin. The ship started to groan and shudder with tings and pops that made her nose crinkle. Those were things bending sounds. There were many whirs, thumbs, clangs, and hisses going on around her. There was a lot going on outside. So, do I just strap into the seats? She asked as she tried moving the flight stick. It was dead. Ship was dead stick. No, it's ablation. Zone, get to escape pod three. She was scrambled to the distant escape pod. She felt her panic begin to grow. But, but escape pods are only for space. They were never meant for trust. The awesome... A smirk touched her lips. If she survived this, she was going to foster free license this AI. She was starting to really like it. By now, the hull was thrumming from atmospheric entry. She couldn't tell how fast she was going, but she could feel the air inside warm up already. So, it was far too fast. As she strapped herself in, tucking the rifle into the couch with her, she checked the escape pod systems. Dead. Smashed. Are you sure this one is best available? Trust. She tried to shove the escape pod door shut to seal it, but it was far too twisted, and the metal was almost too hot to touch. The ship was buffeting erratically, screeching sounds reverberating as parts of the hull were torn away in fiery ruin. She wondered if this will actually work. How will we? She couldn't find the words to explain what was going on inside. It sounded just far too beyond hope. I got this within parameters, if you say so, but this... We'll suck. It's okay if you puke. Wait, what? The words were wrenched out of her mouth as a large section of the ship tore away and the ship began a flat spin wildly, talking 
into a backward tumble. The view from the beach below was actually incredible. The twisted and burning wreckage of the ship emerged from the clouds, smoking but having slowed to its terminal velocity, tumbling with a vast backspin in an almost vertical fall. As it neared the reef by the shore, an escape pod detached, its rotational inertia upwards, almost precisely navigating its downward fall. The pod arced gently away from the ship as it smashed to ruin, the pod skipping and tumbling in the shallow water before sliding to a stop on the beach, where a dazed human female tumbled out in her hands and knees, trying to get rid of her obvious dizziness and nausea. She rose to her feet, looking at the smoking ruin of her ship, not quite believing what she had just survived. Well, uh, that certainly sucked. She glanced at her rifle, hoping the AI was still alive in there somehow. You have, it's so bad, but I'm a dumb rifle now. She squealed in delight, happy to not be alone on this barren shipwreck survival situation. Well, it's going to be a tough to survive here until we get rescued. Not so tough. Look up. Just then a shadow fell over her, and she looked up to see a cargo shipping container, drifting down on its emergency parachutes. It settled on the beach not 20 yards from her. She recognized it as from a ship. Colony goods and wares, if she wasn't mistaken. Okay, well now it is impressive. I mean, have you always been this awesome? Looks like I need to upload my new best friend into something more respectable. Let's see what we've got here. After a few minutes of rummaging. Oh sweet, cases of rifle ammo. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot. Thank you very much, and I'm sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. I would just like to thank our T5 members, Lord Azrakal, Ambrose Cattell, Quantum Wednesday, Dregzoon WRE, Blueberry Cat, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, and Leslie517. Thank you very much.